Dear Father, we thank you for a warm room on a cold night. We thank you for uh, the provision of a building. We thank you, Father, for the men and women who serve and, and volunteer to help us be together as a group and to learn together. I thank you that you put us here in this city to teach and you brought us men and women who want to learn. And uh, we all do, do these things, Father, for different reasons. We have interests that come from various corners and walks of life, Father, but we know you've united us by your Spirit. So there's some common purpose in this from your point of view. You're building us up for something, to serve you in some way, to glorify you in some place. Father, help us to understand those purposes. Um, as we study Ezekiel tonight, Father, I pray our minds would be able to shift back in time to their day and age and understand things from the perspective of what was going on in his life as he wrote these words and worked under those circumstances. And then, Father, bring us forward again as we study it to understand how you want us to use what we learn. And that you would convict and guide and encourage and exhort and teach and do all the things that you and only you can do by your word in our hearts. We ask these things, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Chapter 22 is where we are tonight in Ezekiel. We're getting very close to the end of the first half of this book, and that's an important uh, moment for us because it will radically alter the style of of the content of this book from where we've been to where we're going to be going. And in the first half of this book, throughout the first half, we've watched Ezekiel speaking uh, repeatedly to the exiles about their sins. Most of that time, uh, the Lord has defended the need to have to talk to them about their sin, about the history of what they've done wrong, because the people seem to be in denial most of that time. If you've listened to the chapters we've studied in here, and even the ones online before that, you'll know that the Lord has been very patient, but He's had to remind them over and over again of their history, of what they've done in idolatry, and of what they've done in depravity. And it was almost as if the people of Israel couldn't get it through their heads, that there there was any reason at all why God would be upset at them. And at other times as He's done this, He's reviewed the offenses of their leaders particularly, because the leadership of Israel was principally responsible for giving license to the sins that marked the culture. With all of that said, though, the people still had this sense that they were being treated unfairly. And so as we get to the end of this first half of the book, what you'll begin to notice is the Lord increases the pressure on this generation to understand these things and to make sense of what's coming. And specifically, He gets a lot more specific about what they did and a lot more graphic about what they did. And... He does this in order to give justification for the radical and dramatic judgment that is now coming as a result, so that they can understand why things must be as they are. So in chapter 22 tonight, the Lord is going to return to a focus on the leadership of Israel, as He was looking last night, last week rather, in chapter 21, and at the culpability of these leaders. Now just to give you a heads up of where we're going, we have two more chapters after this in the first half of the book. In the next chapter, chapter 23, the Lord is going to return to using allegories. He uses a uh, particularly graphic allegory to explain Israel's sins. And in the final part of this first half, in chapter 24, the Lord is going to pronounce a final devastating judgment on the people using a parable. Alright, so let's look at the bloody guilt of the present generation of Israel as he explains it in chapter 22. Remember, we're getting increasingly graphic and and just pointed because the people of Israel seem to lack the appreciation of what they've done. Verse 1, he says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, we judge the bloody city, then cause her to know all her abominations. You shall say, Thus says the Lord God, A city shedding blood in her midst, so that her time will come 
that makes idols contrary to her interest for defilement. You have become guilty by the blood which you have shed and defiled by your idols which you have made. Thus you have brought your day near and have come to your years. Therefore I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mocking to all the lands. Those who are near and those who are far from you will mock you, you of ill repute, full of turmoil. Behold, the rulers of Israel, each according to his power, have been in you for the purpose of shedding blood. They have treated father and mother lightly within you. The alien they have oppressed in your midst. The fatherless and the widow they have wronged in you. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. Slanderous men have been in you for the purpose of shedding blood, and in you you have eaten at the mountain shrines. In your midst they have committed acts of lewdness. In you they have uncovered their father's nakedness. In you they have humbled her who was unclean in her menstrual impurity. One has committed abominations with his neighbor's wife, and another has lewdly defiled his daughter-in-law. And another in you has humbled his sister, his father's daughter. And in you they have taken bribes to shed blood, You have taken interest in profits, and you have injured your neighbors for gain by oppression. And you have forgotten me, declares the Lord. Now you notice a couple of things repeating, words that are repeating in that passage. And the two things you should have noticed are the word blood coming up multiple times, and in you, in you, in you. And that reference to in you goes back to verse 6, where he says to the rulers of Israel, Each, according to his power, have been in you for the purpose of shedding blood. So the rulers of Israel are at the centerpiece of this. All these activities you see are the activities of the people of Israel, but they were all done in you, meaning, speaking to the rulers, in their sight, in their allowance, in their encouragement, that the rulers of Israel have made all of this possible. So... We'll start with the word blood, though. He says, the various abominations of Israel are bloody. And the Hebrew word is literally blood, but the meaning of that word is idiomatic. It doesn't necessarily mean, in each case, that someone was physically harmed, that there was blood shed, although certainly at times that was true. Uh, We know that child sacrifice took place, for example, and there were certainly other kinds of violence going on. Nevertheless, the word here is being used euphemistically to mean an act of, of some kind of vile or violent form. Something that oppresses the truth, that harms well-being. You know, in the British style, we say bloody this, bloody that. It's a, it's a swear word for them. And in a somewhat similar sense, God is using that word here to just mark how violently awful the people are and not necessarily literally talking about blood in every case. And this was the pattern of Israel for centuries. And it was true, especially of this generation, that they had, quote, shed blood in the midst of the city, of the Lord's city. They had made idols in the city against their own interest, he says in verse 3. And those acts brought the day of judgment nearer and brought judgment to Israel in their time, he said, in their years. I think that's a really useful way to conceive of God's judgment. Or for the case of the believer, the discipline of the Lord. And that is that with each decision that we make to sin, each step we take away from the Lord, we are pulling His judgment closer to us. You know, accelerating. It's like it's a train coming at us on a track and it's headed our way and it moves in concert with our decisions. So if you choose to sin against the Lord, you're sort of accelerating that train of discipline toward you. Now, we're not talking here about judgment in the same sense. We're certainly not talking about a salvitic concern for the believer. But there's still the concern of discipline, of consequence. And as you repent and move away from what you're doing, 
then, as it were, the train is slowing or stopping or going backward. You know, there's this idea that even though you and I don't see the consequences of our sin play out in the moment, in every case, that doesn't mean there isn't some godly accounting for it, and that if the behavior persists, God eventually will allow it to rest on our heads in a way that's corrective for our own sake. But when we don't feel it coming and don't sense it coming, what does that do in our heart? It tends to give us a kind of unfounded sense of security that we can get away with it, until in fact we can't. So Israel, in a way, was pulling that train toward themselves for centuries, for generations, because of the Lord's long-suffering and patient nature. But now he says, in their years, he is going to make known her abominations to them through judgment. And the blood they shed and the idols that they built would stand to convict them. We're not talking here about their father's sins anymore. Now we're talking about the sins of this very generation. So he's making clear to them that in all that he's already said, he doesn't want them to miss the point that they too have culpability. And I love what he says in verse 4. He says they would become a reproach to their neighbors and they would be mocked by their neighbors. And I like that statement because you have to remember how much Israel's neighbors hated them. How despised you know Israel was by its neighbors. It's still that way. So obviously they would love to see nothing more than Israel brought low. You know, they would have been very happy to see that. But the Lord says that Israel will become a reproach before them. And that word reproach, it means that someone looks on them with contempt because of this outcome. It's almost to imply a sense of sympathy, like we feel bad for them because it was such a bad judgment. So that tells you how devastating the attack is going to be, that Israel's hated neighbors actually look at Israel with a sense of of sympathy, at least to, to a degree. They also mock it's downfall. And the mocking must go something like this. You know, here's Israel, the nation that claims to be God's people and claims to be protected by God and have the advantage of that relationship. And now look at them. They're being devastated by that very same God that they hold in such honor or say they do. And so they laugh at Israel in that respect, thinking that you're better than we are and yet you're getting a worse treatment than we are. Right? That's also a reminder of what happens when we enter into a relationship with the living God. Yes, our future is better than the world's future by far because we have a relationship with God who's rescued us from the world's future. But that same relationship puts significant expectations on us for obedience. And when we suffer the consequences of a lack of obedience, we inevitably become a bit of a laughingstock to the, to the unbelieving world who, you know, the, these bumper stickers that pop up once in a while that say, I'm, I'm, I'm not perfect, I'm forgiven. You know, Christians aren't perfect, they're forgiven. That's a way of sort of of diffusing this concept that says that because I'm Christian, I should have a perfect life, and when I don't, you can mock me for it. Well, that's not exactly what we claim. But the challenge is that if we have a witness for Christ that allows for people to think that our relationship with Christ buys us nothing, because they see us only in the disciplinary side of the relationship, then we've lost an opportunity. Our faith ensures that we're victorious in the end, but in the short term, it's our obedience that ensures we have a good testimony. And that's our goal, right? So in verse 6, the Lord turns to the leaders and he begins to recite an inventory of all that the current leaders of Israel had done in furthering the fall of the nation. And that's where we started a moment ago when I said, in you, in you, in you. He's referring to how the leadership had promoted these things. And he says each of these contributed to the bloodshed and violence in Israel according to his power. So what he's saying here is individuals in leadership up and down the chain did evil in their own power judges, priests, etc., kings, whatever, and they presided over evil within their jurisdiction, spreading it as far as their power allowed. But it was everyone in the chain. And look at some of the specific offenses. Verse 7, and it's interesting to see how they start and where they go. 
Verse 7, it begins with disrespect for parents. The leaders, it would appear, treated the authority of parents lightly within Israel. And now with all we've heard about all that's happening in Israel, all the things they've done, I mean, up until and including child sacrifice, this offense may seem a little out of place to you at first. I mean, it's not a very serious offense compared to child sacrifice. And yet, it's on the first point in the list. It's at number one on this list, right? And keep in mind that honoring parents is in the Ten Commandments, too. So it's clearly high on God's list, and that's where it should be, because it's probably the root cause of all of Israel's evils. All of the ills that they're suffering start somewhere. And when children are brought up in families and in a culture where respect for parental authority is optional, you're sowing the seeds of greater problems. Those children eventually grow up to become adults who do not respect authority in general. And a lack of respect for authority takes the brakes off of the depravity of the human heart. So when a child is... Uh, absent a respect for parents, uh, they've, they've experienced life in a way that teaches them that authority is a force to be fought and defeated rather than appreciating authority as God's appointed way to develop respect for the sake of good. So in a, in a, in a home where respect for parents is optional, children see parents as adversaries. And so they learn how to beat them, how to wear them down, how to get around their rules, how to not be committed to submission of, to authority. Uh, a child raised in a home in which authority is respected and parental authority is, is uh, to be obeyed carries that same attitude into adulthood. So what happened in Israel's day, apparently, was that the leaders did not enforce the law's requirements that disobedient children be disciplined. Remember, a child was covered in the law too, and there were offenses in the law for what a child might do against their parents, including uh, and up to striking a parent. And the, the penalty in the law for a child who struck his parent was what? It was death. It was death. The death penalty for a child who would strike his parent. All right, so that says something about how God views disobedience. Now, clearly, we're not under the law, so no, don't hear any of this as advocating for a return to those kinds of policies, not in terms of the specific offense or specific penalty, but in the, th- in the principle behind it, certainly, we haven't... There's nothing to change that. Scripture in the New Testament carries it forward. So in Israel's case, disobedience became the norm. The law was not being followed anywhere, not in this area either. And as childhood rebellion became the norm in their culture, societal rebellion against the law generally became common. You see, it's a small jump, really. If a part of the law doesn't apply when you're a child and develops in them a rebellious heart, now as an adult, why do I need any of the law? And in a related trend... When a culture becomes engaged in fighting against the powers that be, it loses interest in the weak. So think about it. If you are building a culture in which rebellion and resistance to authority is the norm, it is the way by which you get ahead in the culture, then the fatherless or the widow or the stranger, anyone who is weak and powerless and unable to compete in that environment, well, they're going to be overlooked. They're going to be abandoned. They're going to be abused. The alien who has little or no rights in the culture will will be oppressed. Because in a society that only values power in a rebellion, it loses respect for those who offer neither. And that's what the Lord says happens next. You notice, after their lack of respect for parents, it moves to a lack of respect for the weak. And, And I don't want you to think that these are 
that, that this is just an arbitrary connection here. There's a real psychological side to this, spiritual side to this, I guess, in which those who are submitted to authority have a tender heart for those who are weak and need support. Those who are opposed to authority are in a mindset of opposing anything that can, can stand in their way. It's a power mindset. A power of either I'm submitted to it or I am the power. And when you are the power, you don't care about the weak, typically. Third, the Lord says the next stage of this was Israel despised the holy things of God, including the Sabbath. And this is also progressing from where we've been. For those who have learned to fight against authority at home and then later in authority of society, well, the next step naturally is to fight against the authority of God, for there is no authority greater than God. So if your heart is determined to fight authority, God is your perfect target. And Israel was a culture that was saturated with the symbols and the rituals of God. Every day had things about it that were reminders of God's authority. Every week had one day that was your reminder. Months had feasts. And the whole year of the calendar was set up to remember God. We don't know how much this generation of Israel was engaged in those things. We just heard that they profaned the Sabbath. So they may have been far from many of these things. But how did they get there? Well, if you were a Jew with a heart set against obeying authority generally... Well, profaning the Lord's rituals, profaning His Sabbath, was sort of an obvious next step. You had this daily opportunity to flex your muscles against God. Uh, Once your heart gets a taste of rebellion, by the way, it's really hard to cut it off. It's really hard to tell yourself that's not who you want to be anymore. So disobedience to parents led to disobedience against law as an uh, adult, and a rebellious and disobedient adult heart soon became a rebellion against the ultimate authority in Israel, which was God Himself. And once your heart is freed from the constraint of law and of God's authority, then there is no longer any restraint to depravity. So the next defense in the chain is, again, the natural result. Slander, murder, engaging in idol worship, and sexual depravity. And that is exactly the slippery slope that Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. I'll just remind you in a brief passage from 1 when he says in verse 21, For even though they knew God, sounds like Israel, This is not to say Romans is talking specifically about Israel. I'm just asking you to apply the same pattern here. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures, idolatry. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And that's that next step of sexual impurity and other like sins. So, in all of the things that we're reading here, it's all coming in you, that is, in the leadership of Israel, a kind of permissive culture. And in that permissive culture, starting in the family, moving to society, moving into the religious side of Israel, people start becoming authorities to themselves. You remember the phrase from Judges, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It comes to that. And turning from true authority led people to start establishing their own authorities in the sense of idolatry, a license to do what you wish, a God in your own image, making themselves apparently wise and sophisticated, but in reality just being foolish. They then began to profane their own bodies. And ritual sex, ritual sex, meaning sex that's part of some kind of religious festival or religious observance, was the height of Canaanite worship practices. And this is no surprise to anybody, but that naturally attracted Israel's interest. And I happen to believe that the enemy anticipated that effect, and so he used sex within the Canaanite religious practices as a means of enticing Israel to participate with them in it. 
Douglas Stewart said this about Canaanite worship practices. I found this an interesting bit of background. He said, Ritual sex was another great attraction of idolatry. Most of the ancient Near Easterners believed that all things that came into being were born into being. That's a major tenet of their belief system. So they believed that not only were animals born, but also plants were born. And what was born into being, they believe, started with sex on the part of the gods. Specifically, Baal and Asherah, the god and goddess of fertility. They also thought that if a person bringing an offering to Baal or Asherah had ritual sex with a prostitute at the shrine as part of the worship, that would help stimulate the divine powers of nature to have sex as well, and that would produce more animals and more crops and so on. So, he goes on to say, as outlandish as that sounds to us, it was the pinnacle of theology among Canaanites. That was literally what the Israelites were accepting at Baal Peor. So, that's the idea of fertility. I, I have sex with a prostitute in a shrine, and that uh, entices the gods to join in, and then they, every time they have sex, it produces something in nature for us. I mean, it's just a lie of the enemy that says, have sex. So naturally, as their sexual practices degenerated within the culture, it just became a, a free-for-all sexual lust experiment within the culture. You notice some of the things he says followed. They uncovered their father's nakedness, which would indicate fathers engaging in these ritual sexual activities side by side with other family members. Women, he says, put into service to men even while in menstruation, which was against the law and considered abhorrent. Um, Adultery and incest followed, he describes. Now, those practices weren't simply happening in some dark corner of the culture. We're not talking about the red light district in Jerusalem or something of that sort. These are the common and even acceptable practices within Israel, and they're encouraged by the leadership. The leaders are saying, this is an acceptable way for us to carry on as a people. All right? Now, can you imagine that kind of a place? I mean, as bad as we think our world is, and certainly in some ways it may be worse, generally, though, in our society, even now, for at least the time, we frown on these things more or less. I mean, but can you imagine a society in which these behaviors, the ones I listed all along, if if they were as common in culture for us as kids' soccer games and walking your dog in the park, and just as acceptable. Thankfully, we're not quite there. But that's where they were. And remember, they're, they're doing this not just, again, off in some corner of the country. They're doing it in the temple, while the Shekinah glory of God is still resident in the Holy of Holies. So, verse 12, the Lord says, The culture finally came to the point of men taking bribes as a contract on other men's lives, you know, this is, this is mafia-style lifestyle. People charging interest on debt, which you may think is not a big deal, but it was, it was against the law, and it was a form of oppression and taking advantage. And willingly injuring neighbors for financial gain. And he sums it up by saying they've forgotten the Lord. You just you have to think about some of these things for a while to really gain the full appreciation for how bad life must have been in that culture, how, how absolutely debased it must have been to live in that culture. Now, knowing how bad things have become, is it any surprise that they can't accept Ezekiel's warnings? I mean, they could scarcely remember who God was at this point. Uh, Generation after generation of this stuff going on, right? It's been literally generations since this people have ever truly experienced His presence, seen it at at work or uh, worshipped Him properly. And as I said, meanwhile, His glory is still in the temple. It's just literally a few feet away from ritual sex and idolatry. It's a wonder the Lord didn't strike the whole nation down, you know, generations ago. 
So now as he's speaking to them, the words that he speaks, from up to this point anyway, have hardly made a dent into their hard hearts and hard heads. But the grace of God is evident in this story in the very fact that he keeps trying. That he's pursuing his people despite their disinterest in him. And getting their attention for his words is his goal. And it begins now by stripping them of their unholy gain and of their depraved practices, moving them to a state where their heart will finally be receptive. You know, it's, it's one thing to give a bunch of words as he's done through Ezekiel, and yet we know they're not getting anywhere with the words, but he's going to back them up with a show of power that makes the words relevant to them. The conversation now moves to uh, using a metaphor to demonstrate how he is going to melt their hearts to the point where they do understand these things properly. And that's where we go now, verse 13. He says, Behold then, I smite my hand at your dishonest gain, which you have acquired, and at the bloodshed which is among you. Can your heart endure, or can your hands be strong in the day that I will deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken and will act. I will scatter you among the nations, I will disperse you through the lands, and I will consume your uncleanness from you. You will profane yourself in the sight of the nations, and you will know that I am the Lord. All right, this is just a prelude to the metaphor that we're about to launch into. But he says to the leadership, you know, you found a lot of ways to profit from all your lawlessness, but you're going to see all that dishonest gain stripped away. Now, practically speaking, we know that he was stripping through the process of that big dramatic invasion of Nebuchadnezzar on the third wave. I mean, the city's wiped out. The people are either killed or hauled off into captivity. They've got nothing left. And then the land is left fallow for 70 years. Anybody who knows anything about farming knows that if you leave a land unused for 70 years, it's going to be a serious fixer-upper when you come back. There's, there's, it's not like you can just roll right back in and plant again, right? It's going to be overgrown and, and not useful. So he is stripping away everything of value from the people that they accumulated through their dishonest gain. And he's going to humble their evil hearts. And he asks them, rhetorically, if they think that their proud, hard hearts can endure what he is going to bring against them. And the answer is obvious, or it should be obvious to anyone who entertains the question. But can you or I, can anyone withstand what the Lord is prepared to bring against someone who is not getting his word, but he needs them to give him their attention, you know, to get their attention, you know, to soften your disobedient heart, to bring someone into submission? I mean, God is amazing in what he can come up with. And is there anyone who can withstand it? I mean, it's, it's, the answer is obvious, right? It's worth remembering that should we entertain a season of disobedience in our lives, you can't beat the Lord. You know, you can... As Lincoln once said, right, you can fool all the people all the time, or some of the people all the time, I can't even remember it now. What's the one thing you can't do, fool all the people all the time? Right? Well, the one thing you can't do is fool the Lord. And in His patience, and in His long-suffering nature, He may give us enough rope that we do a really good job of hanging ourselves. But eventually, He gives us the rod. Eventually, He brings us under the rod, and when He when he does, he asks that question. Do you think your heart can endure? Do you think you'll be strong in that day? The foolish think that they will either never be held accountable or they can stand up to God when that day comes. That same foolishness is what caused them to rebel against God's authority in the first place. And now it's deceiving them into thinking that there'll be no consequences. But when they inevitably do come, they won't stand. That's his point. So the Lord promises, I will disperse you. He's told them this before. And he says, I'm going to do this so that I can consume your uncleanness. Now, when he says that, consume their uncleanness, he's referring to the way that he is going to use the events of this dispersion 
to remove idolatry from the nation. We've talked about this, I know, before. Uh, and so I won't repeat that. It's just a simple to say that because of this dispersion, they're not going to go back to idolatry. It's going to work. But then he adds that in their desperate circumstances, Israel would profane themselves, he says. So in other words, he says, as they turn back from idolatry while in captivity, they will be unable to abide by the requirements of the law because of their captivity. It's kind of a catch-22, right? He's going to strip them of everything such that they will have nothing left but God and the law, and that will encourage their interest to repent and come back. Only in that set of circumstances, at least for a time, they won't be able to come back. Not in the full sense of the law. So, among other things, the people probably had to eat unclean food just to survive. Remember, Daniel at one point refuses to eat such things in captivity, and he's in the same captivity, but he was in a different situation. And he had a little bit more privilege than probably the typical captive did, But it's unlikely that all Jews were equally equally scrupulous about what they ate. So he's simply pointing out that they're going to be stripped of everything to the point that all they have left is their identity in God, and yet even then they won't be able to satisfy themselves in that. And in that way they'll rediscover a respect for his authority. That process of stripping away sin and of depravity and of softening a hard heart, that process, which God does to everyone to some degree... It can be well understood by a comparison to metallurgy, to the way metal is purified. And that's a comparison that you see in Scripture in various places, and it shows up here very clearly. And the Lord uses this process of purifying metal to explain what was coming and how it was going to affect the people. Verse 17, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace. They are all the dross of silver. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Because all of you have become dross, therefore, behold, I'm going to gather you into the midst of Jerusalem. As they gather silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into the furnace to blow fire on it in order to melt it, so I will gather you in my anger and in my wrath, and I will lay you there and melt you. I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath, and you will be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in the furnace, so you will be melted in the midst of it, and you will know that I, the Lord, have poured out my wrath on you. So this is an analogy that you've probably heard before. Uh, Dross is the name we give to the impurities that are in ore mined from the ground. And if you have the desired metal here of silver, as he said, or gold, or even lead, if that's your goal then it has to be freed from the other impurities that are in the ore, like sulfur, for example, or in this case, everything that's not silver. So in a smelting process, you heat that ore up to many, many degrees, very hot, and as as all the things in the ore melt, all the metals melt at their appropriate melting point, you end up with a, a vessel filled with molten material, and the desirable metals are typically the heaviest metals, and so they sink. And the lighter stuff comes to the surface, And those lighter parts are scraped off. A blacksmith takes a tool and he scrapes the impurities off the surface of that molten uh, metal. And those impurities are called dross. And he says Israel is nothing but dross at this point. And so the removal of the impurities involves this two-step process that he compares to what he's doing with them. And the two steps are simply heating and separation. Heating, separation. So when he seeks to strip Israel of its impurities, he does both things in a relative sense. First, in verse 19, 
the Lord says, he puts them in the middle of the city of Jerusalem. Now, he's talking about the city like it's a pot. Like they've been put in a confined space like iron ore in a pot. Historically, we know that happened. The people were in the city when they were attacked by a Babylonian army and they were blockaded in there by the army for quite some time. And it was a very horrible situation for them. They had no food and they were entrapped and it was uh, a bad time. It's like being in a pot heated up. Secondly, the Lord has gathered the the previous metal, the the dross in the city, all the iron ore, which refers to the peoples. He says, I'm going to gather you in the city. It's like dumping iron ore in the pot. Now, Israel's sins were numerous. I mean, their dross was, was huge in comparison to the parts that he cared about. But the people themselves are precious to the Lord. Right? The people are the silver. It's their sinful lifestyle. It's their disobedient heart. The dross is what they've become under their leadership. It's not inherently who they are. So the Lord wanted a stripping process that would remove the people from their sins, as it were, like taking the silver out of the dross. So the people in the city are heated up. He says, I'm blowing my wrath on you. It invokes the idea of a blacksmith blowing air on the coals of a fire to get it really hot. And he says, I'll do that to melt you. Now the heat in this analogy is pretty easy to name, right? What, what, what is heat? Well, under these circumstances, that's the siege, that's the army, that's the destruction, that's the fighting, that's the years of time spent in the city under blockade, and then the years of time spent in captivity. We would just say trial, right? The heat of a trial. And it was severe. It had to be. Because these hearts really needed to be melted. And that's what he used to do it. And after the softening came, so you have the two steps. You have the the heating, the melting. And he's done that in the process of the turmoil of getting them captive and taking them back into the land of Babylon. Then after the softening, the Lord has to scrape away the dross, which in this case would compare to the sins, the desires of their life that were not godly. So how did he do that? What was the scraping process? Well, first he moves the people away from the land from the sight of the high places, from the influence of the Canaanites. And then he removed their evil leaders, who were those people encouraging them to do, to do these things. He stripped away the leadership. And then he stripped away the priesthood, and he stripped away the temple, and he stripped away all the supporting structure that let them do what they did. And then finally, he stripped the people themselves away from the ability to follow their lusts because they were now limited in their captivity. They could not go and do and say what they wanted. And in that situation, as desperation takes hold, when you're under those kinds of constraints and pressure and heat, as the analogy would suggest, you start to look for relief, naturally. And people in those sorts of circumstances, particularly people who have a relationship with God, even if it's at a distance, will naturally start looking again to Him. That's where you get adages like, there's no atheist in a foxhole. Not true, but it conveys a similar idea that in... Times of pressure and need and desperation, people suddenly, you know, get some Jesus in them, as people might say. And in this case, what was left after this process was something pure and holy and obedient to God, at least in the outset of things, at the beginning of things. And if you want a comparison of this, this is homework. Take what you just read in this chapter and compare it, put it side by side with what you read in the first chapters of either Ezra or Nehemiah. And look at the heart of those books, what the people were thinking and saying. How Nehemiah reacts to the thought of his city in disrepair. Uh, how Ezra and the people react to the sight of the foundations of the temple. How they, the hearts of those people are 180 degrees different than the hearts of the people you're hearing about here. 
Their hearts are wounded over saying God's name and, and temple in disrepair and so on and so forth. So there's clearly something that has changed in those 70 years in their heart. That's what the Bible means when it says the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Now you may be asking yourself, well, where was the kindness of God in this? I didn't see a lot. Well, the phrase does not mean God is nice to us and that's why we come back to him. And if you want to prove that that's not how it's meant, in other words, that's not the way it actually works, I want you to try to just be super, super nice to your four-year-old and see how effectively that makes for good discipline. See how effective that will be in encouraging their obedience. Just be nice to them and kind to them in every circumstance. We know that's not exactly how it works, right? When the Bible says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, Paul means it that as the Lord allows us to experience the desperation created by our own rebellion. It produces a desire for relief from the effects of our sin. And in that process, our heart comes to see obedience to God as a preferable choice to what we now have. It's kindness that God brings us through the trial to produce that outcome. Where before, we may have thought that God's holiness and His law and His constraints, if we thought of it that way, His constraints on us, it seemed like something we ought to fight against. Now, under our circumstances, we see them as a blessing. And that's the point of heat and separation. It puts us in a set of circumstances in which a turning to God is the preferable outcome. And here's the best example I can offer you. It's the one Jesus offers us. It's the prodigal son in Luke 15. That son's trial in the pig's mud led him to appreciate his father's kindness from a distance. Luke fifteen seventeen it says, But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. So his poverty uh, and his loneliness was his heat, his pressure. And his desperate circumstances stripped him of his pride and his arrogance and his defiance against his father's authority. And it was at that point the son came to his senses in in that he became a new man, precious again to God, pure again in his heart. And where before his father's authority and provision, which was always there, it was seen as something to be resisted and rejected and run away from. I mean, his father hadn't changed. You know, his father never changes in the story. Same guy in the beginning as he is in the end. But now the son, because of his desperate circumstances, he has now come to appreciate the father's authority as a comfort to be respected, not as a force to be fought against. And that's the nature of rebellion, by the way. The nature of rebellion sees authority as something to oppose, as opposed to something that you benefit from. And that's how the Lord brings our heart into repentance. It is the kindness of God. So there's a, there's a phrase I would add to what Paul says to make the whole thing come together for us. It is the kindness of God to take us through trials of discipline so that we would be led into repentance. It is not the kindness of God per se. It's not God being nice to us that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness of God in all that He is willing to do that results in our repentance. And he is kind in the fact that he attends to us at that level. Will bring us through things to that degree, rather than just write us off and let us go. Right? It's the kindness of God in that sense. And that's what he's doing here with his own people. I mean, another way to say it is, he is going to an awful lot of trouble to get Israel back to himself. He had to bring a whole army down, three times no less. He's got to spend 70 years in captivity. He's got to let them come back again. I mean, 
He's also, obviously, he is working hard for their sake. All right, so now to end the chapter, the Lord directs the blame for all of this, once again, squarely at the leaders, who have made it possible for the people to stray so far. Verse 23. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in her midst, like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in the midst of her. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the profane, and they have not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean, and they hide their eyes from my Sabbaths. I am profaned among them. Her princes within her are like wolves tearing the prey by shedding blood and destroying lives in order to get dishonest gain. Her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery, and they have wronged the poor and needy and have oppressed the sojourner without justice. I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. Thus I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their way I have brought upon their heads, declares the Lord God. All right, so first, Ezekiel the prophet says that Israel is a land that is not cleansed or rained upon. And what he's saying is the punishment for their sins began long before all of this took place. It started as a drought. Uh, Historically, we know that Israel had gone through periods of drought for many years under earlier prophets, and and now again, apparently, because of what was coming, because of what God was preparing to bring them. It was kind of a foreshadowing of what was coming. His point here is, if you doubt me, take a look at what I've already started doing. You should see that the plan is already enacted. Uh, By the way, rain in the Bible is a picture, as well as a reality, but a picture of blessing from God, of grace. So the imagery is clear. The days of blessing are over, at least for now. You're about to experience spiritual dryness. And the cause again? Well, it was all that corrupt leadership. And then what he does to explain that, he takes the leadership and he breaks them down into four groups of different leaders or actors, I could say. And he presents each as a part of Israel's downfall. So the the groups are this, prophet, priest, king, and then finally the people themselves as another group. But if you'll notice, interestingly, prophets are repeated. So the prophet gets mentioned first and last in that list, which reflects, I guess, the unique importance of those who speak for God. So Israel's problems, you could say, began and ended with God's word, or the lack thereof. So in the case of the prophets, where he starts, they're not true prophets here, obviously. Later he says they speak, thus says the Lord, when the Lord hadn't actually spoken. So they're making it up. And so he's speaking here of false prophets. The false teaching of one of these prophets would confirm the other. And this is a tactic you need to be aware of that's common within false teachers. We say teachers today as opposed to prophet. But they follow a similar style today that they did in that day. And what you'd find is one man would step forward as a prophet, so to speak. He would say he was, and he would teach or say something. And you had no way to know if he was right or not. So another guy who's also a false prophet would pipe up and he'd say the same thing the other guy was saying. So now you had two witnesses, or so you thought. And it's like the old saying, just because two people repeat the same rumor, that doesn't prove it's true. 
You know, the more people repeating it, the more you think, oh, it must be true. Everyone's saying it. No, that just means everybody's sharing in the same rumor. All right, well, it's a typical tactic of false teachers, generally. They tend to feed off one another. And you see this today with prosperity heretics and, and, and you know, word faith people and the like. That, that as soon as one of those people come up with some new angle, some new trick, some new phrase, some new false interpretation of some obscure text, and it gets kind of an audience and it gets some, some momentum going in the movement, and, and more importantly, it turns into money, the next thing you'll find is everybody else who's doing that same thing will pick up on the new technique and add it to their shtick. And now, with each time you turn on the TV, they're all talking about it. Well, it's just a sign that they're all copying to get the same effect, but it has the unfortunate side effect of confirming in the minds of some that this must be true because everybody's teaching it. Right? And prosperity teaching tends to do that on itself. It feeds on itself so that if you move around within that community, you start to hear many of the same things. And it seems evidence to us that there's some truth behind it because everybody's doing it. All right? But the results are always the same, he says in verse 25. They devour lives, they take treasure, and they make widows. And that's a th- in, in Israel's case, those refer to specific things that are not always true in everybody's case. But they are interesting in another way in that they mirror the enemy's goals. The enemy's goal is always to kill, steal, and destroy. Well, those three things, devour lives, take treasure, and make widows, or kill, steal, and destroy. So it does seem to reflect the fact that he's getting exactly what he wants out of that style of teaching. So the testimony of the false prophets in Israel's day produced these devastating results. You had men in Israel being robbed of their money. That's always part of the plan, right? People taking money from each other. Never, that's not new. Um, but with the sexual misconduct that you heard about earlier, you see families and their relationships being distorted and damaged and broken up. And I mean, if anybody's ever had, unfortunately, the experience of being in, involved in any kind of uh, sexual abuse within a family setting, you know how devastating that is to long-lasting relationships. No one's ever quite the same after that. And if you think about it at the level we're talking about here, my goodness, what kinds of devastation was taking place in the family structures within Israel? And uh, the last piece there where he says widows were made, he's spe- speaking there specifically about what was going on in his day among the false prophets. False prophets, were, and we covered this in an earlier chapter that wasn't here, so that's why some of you may not know this. But the prophets in Israel's day, the false prophets, were telling the people in Jerusalem the opposite of what Jeremiah and Ezekiel were saying. That is, Ezekiel and Jeremiah were telling their respective constituencies that when this third attack comes, do not resist or you will die. Submit to the authority of God in Nebuchadnezzar's attack, surrender to his army and you'll live. What the false prophets were saying is, no, God is telling us to fight the Babylonians and if we fight them, we'll win. Well, then the people deceived by the false prophets sent their sons and, and fathers to go fight, and they die. Many widows were made by the false prophets. And not to be hyperbolic, but I do think false teaching is having a somewhat similar effect on the church today. That is, the, the false teachers are fleecing the flock of money. That much is obvious. I do think they encourage the greed and lust of, of, of our hearts when they say that God will give us what we want. And depending on what we're lusting for, we may then be encouraged to go off and do some of these same kinds of things in our own way, uh, either hoping for material riches or other kinds of, of pleasures. Um, and in the end, they always do the same things to these relationships. They break relationships, they cause suspicion, they get people angry and upset at God or at the church or at preaching in general or at the Bible or whatever, 
and destroy testimonies in, in the long run. I mean, the enemy knows exactly what he's doing, and he's very good at it. All right, that's all coming out of false teaching, false prophets. Second group, priests, verse 26, we're told that the ones who were called upon by God to intercede for Israel with the Lord in the priesthood, they did violence to the law and they profaned holy things. So think about that now for a minute. You have God having given Israel a law and a system within the law for worship, and he's carefully designed this system so that it reveals him to his people. It reveals God's nature, His character, His purposes, His Son, in the details of what God had given to His people. And then He puts a priesthood in place, the Aaronic priesthood, and commissioned them to guard these things. Remember, the Aaronic priesthood was not a picture of Christ's priesthood. We know that from Hebrews. But it did have a purpose all its own. It was to guard the things of the law for the people of Israel so that they might gain the benefits thereof. That He would guard the name and the character of God, that they would help ensure that the people were taught these things and clearly understood these things. But what did they do instead? Well, they became representatives of pagan gods. They led the people away from true worship. There's a time earlier in this book where we see all of the elders of the priesthood, all the primary 24 serving priests of the temple, engaged in, in worship of the sun right before they began their temple activities for the day. So they were the heads of pagan religions by this time presiding over profane practices in the temple, setting up the idols in the temple, inviting prostitutes into the temple. So if the people... Now think about this for a minute. If you were someone in Israel and you just happened to navigate your way out of false teaching, you happened to avoid falling for any of the false prophets, and you stayed somehow true to the word of God and still looking for the right God, and you go to the temple one day to worship Him, you're now met with these yahoos who sidetracked you at the last minute into idolatry, potentially. It's like you can't win for losing. You came looking for the true God, and the priesthood that was there ostensibly to help you do that directs you off into something else. It's all part of the conspiracy that God said was enacted by all of these groups working together. Now, we don't have priests today not in this sense. No man or woman intercedes to God on our behalf. We are all part of a priesthood the Bible says we all have direct access. Remember, the word priest just means an interceder, intercessors. As a priest, you intercede between a group of people and God. Well, if we're all priests, who are we interceding for? The unsaved. So we are the way the unsaved world finds Christ. We're the priesthood of Christ leading the world to our high priest. Okay, that's the idea anyway. So we don't have that concern of finding our own priest. Nevertheless, we can do what they did in the way that we might mislead people when they come looking for the right God and they see that we might have an answer, we can mislead them. But how would we do it? Well, apart from those who might do it intentionally because they're not truly Christian, let's take that away for a moment. What about the real believer? Well, if you mix the holy and the profane in the way that was going on in Israel's day, in the way that God says they turned the holy into something that was profane, when you mix the holy and the profane, you set up an opportunity for someone to be discouraged or to be misled into how to find the real God. That's why purity in doctrine and in practice matters in the church. You can't mix the world with the church and think that somehow the world is smart enough to figure out which of the two is meaningful. You can't mix Scripture and what it says to do with worldly notions of what the world says to do, either in business or in in psychology or in some other discipline of the world's thinking, and assume that because you mix them, they get better. 
People come to the church, presumably, to find the truth about God. And anything we do within that context that steers people away from the truth of God and the Word is a mistake, and we're going to be held accountable for it. And that's what the priesthood did in a much more egregious way, obviously. But we can fall prey to the same problem if we're not careful, because we're the priesthood for the unbeliever in the world today. God has asked us to play that role. Thirdly, in verse 27, the Lord says that the princes of Israel, now that's the kings, of course, uh, the nobles, the word in Hebrew is literally nobles, they're like wolves tearing at the prey because they encourage the bloodshed and the destroyed lives to gain riches that mark the culture. You know the saying, right? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So you had these absolute powerful men who should have put the needs of the people and the nation first, and what they did instead was they supported their own interests in that role. And God's expectation for anyone that he has in authority over his people is that we would put the needs of the people over our own needs. But I'll tell you, not just as a pastor, which is not a very powerful position as they go, but it doesn't matter, it doesn't take much. When you have any kind of position of authority, you will always have temptation to use that power for your own advantage. You, just, you can never tell yourself, I don't have that problem. At every turn, there's an opportunity to take home a pen from the office. You know, There's always some thought that says, I can do this because no one will care. In Israel, the corrupt kings were willing to condone or engage in murder in order to become rich. Well, you don't get to murder overnight, but you know, it doesn't start there. It's, one day you take a pen home from the office, the next day you're killing people. All right, That's what you need to understand. In verse 28, uh, we hear that those false prophets, come, they come up again now, but it's in this context, I think, of princes, that they were the ones lying in support of the king, and probably to share with him in his favor, in his riches. So here again, it all begins and ends with what the prophets say. So the enemy has used these men, these prophets, so to speak, to corrupt God's people. And as he did, Satan must have assumed that his plan to destroy Israel and thereby prevent the Messiah was going splendidly. He had all segments of authority on his side. He was completely corrupting the people. They looked nothing like what they were supposed to be in, in terms of how they lived and behaved. And if Israel, if Israel could be absorbed into idolatry to that degree, well, then the Messiah would have no one to receive him when he came. I mean, it would just completely stop the plan of God. At least that's his hope, right? But the Lord has always used Satan in, in a way that lets Satan do what he thinks is the thing he gets, and God turns it into what he needs, right? So Satan is directing the, 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 the idolatry and all the rest in the nation, which is going to lead God to use Babylon to attack his people to correct the heart. Well, Satan is the one who stimulates the hearts of the Babylonians to come in and destroy God's people. In the attack, it's a refining outcome. In Satan's mind, it's the last straw to destroy God's people. It's the very same way that God used Satan to destroy Christ, thinking that was going to be the end of it through Judas, and it became the means to his own end. All right? He's always one step behind. And then finally, the fourth group. These are the people. The Lord says in verses 29 and 30, that the fruit of these corrupt leaders was a people who lacked mercy or love. They rob, they oppress, they have no compassion on the needy or the stranger. Those, I would argue, are the traits that you'll find common in any group of people who have taken their eyes off the Lord. Long enough, long enough. When you're not walking with the Lord, to varying degrees you become untrustworthy, unloving, and unkind. Your heart starts to rebel 
And it starts in this way, as we saw already, where you rebel first against the authorities in your life, then you rebel against God as the ultimate authority, and unless and until He brings you back by His kindness through some kind of disciplinary process, you just keep moving in that direction. There's nothing to pull you back. Uh, In Ezekiel's day, the Lord says He looked for one person. I love that phrase. He looked for someone to stand in the gap, right? To take the place of these bad leaders. It's all in the context of leadership. So a man, and he doesn't say, I want an army of men, I want a people. He says, I want one man. That indicates he's looking for a leader. He's saying, is there anyone in this country who could take the role of leadership and in taking that role, correct this problem, bring the people back to me? And he says, I searched, I found none. Now, that statement is hyperbolic. It's, it's spoken for effect because obviously the Lord doesn't need to go searching. He knows everybody's heart. He knew whether he had one or not. So the whole idea of a search is itself hyperbolic. He didn't go around checking. Okay, And furthermore, I should add, he, he has got Daniel, he's got Ezekiel, he's got Jeremiah. And by the way, Daniel is a pretty good leader. It's going to turn out to be, right? So obviously those men could have stood in the gap. They were at least, let's say, worthy to do it in the way God has raised them. So he's not saying there's literally no one who's uh, eligible, nor is he saying, I've looked and I'm surprised I can't find anyone. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, the point is this, the nation had strayed so far from a point in which they respected God and followed God, that no man had the ability. It was literally impossible for a human being to take a role in Israel that could tame their hearts. This was beyond an ability of any human being to do. That's the point. This problem was too big to solve with man. It required a God-sized solution to solve this problem. And that's a reference to his conquest and exile plan. That's it. So, in other words, he could have raised up David. He could have raised up Solomon. He could have put Moses on the, on the seat again. He could have given any man the opportunity. The problem wasn't the man. The problem was that it was a job too big for any man because the nation had gone so far. There's no good king good enough or powerful enough. Notice in verse 31, the Lord promises that as a result, he has no choice but to pour out his indignation and consume them. There is no other solution. So evil was too entrenched, the rebellion had gone too far, the problem was too big, all that remained was this option. And that there is a point. There is a point, I think, if you draw this analogy out to conclusion in the life of an individual, if you could think of someone whose life had gone that far off track, there is a point where rebellion has to be met with severe consequences. For there is nothing less that can work. And a good example out of Scripture is what Paul says about the rebellious sinner in Corinth, In 1 Corinthians 5, when he speaks about this man from a distance in his writing, he says, For I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in the Spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. He's talking about a man who engaged in some sexual sin in the church. And in verse 4, he says, In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So we talked, I think, last week about in 1 Corinthians 11, the church was the suffering people dying because they were abusing the Lord's Supper. So at some point, the Lord is not above ending someone's physical life early, early relative to what we expected, in order to make a point about the consequences of sin to others and in a way, to mitigate against their own self-destruction. I, I use an analogy when I think of this in the way God does it. I think of it like a coach with a team in which you've got a player on the field who's hurting the team. 
At some point, you bench him. And at some point, God might bench us. We're hurting the team. And from an eternal rewards point of view, he's also doing us a favor if he cuts short our sinning. If it gives you another 20 years to keep sinning, you're only digging yourself a deeper hole. And so in some ways, it's, it's grace. In fact, in any way you want to look at it, it's grace for God to take us out of the world sooner than later for someone who is intent on spending the rest of their life in that way. So it's, it, you know, it's not changing your eternal outcome, at least in the sense of your salvation. But what I am saying is, if you test God, you know, who can stand in the day when he is, is ready to settle an account with somebody? It, it's, not a, it's not denying his grace. It's not in any way lessening his love. In fact, if you think about discipline in its proper sense, it's a confirmation of his love that if he did not discipline us, we would be as if we were illegitimate children. So the real solution for rebellious hearts is found not in a man's solution, but in a God's solution. In the nation's case, it was a a God-designed invasion. And on a personal level, it's Christ. The ultimate solution is Christ in a heart that's rebellious. But for the one who has Christ and is rebelling, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, you have an obligation to the God who saved you to obey Him, and He doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. He may let you get, you know, have your rope long enough to, to really hang yourself, but at the end of the day, He doesn't go away, and I think we all test Him in our own ways, and He is long-suffering in that testing. Just don't test Him too long. You know, better to learn from the lessons of others than to repeat them yourself, right? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are... Mindful, Lord, of our days of obedience, punctuated by those moments of disobedience. But, Father, if we have the opposite problem, days of disobedience punctuated by moments of obedience, I pray, Father, you would get a hold of our hearts as you and only you can do, and that you would, uh, in your kindness, Father, put us in a circumstance where we have every reason to repent and every desire to come back to you. We don't relish the opportunity to experience that, but we certainly would prefer that over a life of disobedience. And Lord, in in the lives of those we know and love and others who we may run into who are living in a way that we know is not pleasing to you, we just ask you to give us the kind of of, uh, kind, soft, gracious words that would uh, open their eyes, their ears to the truth and soften their hearts. Let us be a minister to them in those moments in the right way. And if we're the one who needs that counsel, Father, then I pray that our ears would be opened and we would hear what you have in counsel to us in an open-hearted way. And then, Father, with all that we've learned, we do pray, Father, that we'd see you soon. We do know, Lord, that this is a temporary life, but one that you have designed for a good purpose in glorifying you, Father. We want to use it well, but we want to come home when the day is right. So we look forward to that, too. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.